Study of Race, Politics and Culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism and neoliberalism with your host, Michael Dawson. Well, it's my pleasure to meet a new friend, um, and oh, I, we still can't use the word comrade yet, can we? <laughs> <laughs> Raul Moreno Campos holds a PhD in political science with a focus on race, ethnicity, and politics from UCLA. Moreno Campos is currently a lecturer in political science in the University Experience Program at Cal State University's Channel Islands. His fields of expertise include Afro-American and Latin American political thought, Marxism, race relations in the United States, 20th century Latin American cultural and intellectual history, the politics of authoritarian regimes, and state-sponsored violence in America. So in terms of what you study, you sound like a political scientist, but if I look at political science journals, I don't see this stuff in there, so I'm not sure what's going on <laughs> <laughs> in our discipline. But it's a pleasure to have you with us, and I think we're going to have a fascinating conversation today. Grateful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's definitely our pleasure. What I'd like to start today is to think a little bit about some of your work, on your, your critical work, on the role of race and capitalism in Central America historically, and particularly a story that I think is not very well known, not only among historians, but among the general public and scholars more generally, about the explicit whitening of countries like El Salvador by the state, but at the same time when sort of processes of racialization and the intersection of capitalism were integral from everything from how labor markets were organized, according to your work, as well as producing the seats and foundations for revolt and potential revolution. Can you talk a little bit about particularly with, I guess, respect, you know, where you can pick where you want to start, but I was thinking specifically of El Salvador and what Mesihaje project, what that project meant, and how was it related to, like, labor markets and the state? Yes, absolutely. I think as a point of entry into these questions about the connection between racial difference and race more generally and, and capitalism, I was really taken by my experience being having been born in El Salvador and living there through the Salvadorian civil conflict, I was keenly aware about class difference, but I wasn't so much aware about race difference until I came to the United States. Surprise, surprise. Of course. <laughs> about and what happened when you got here. I'm not talking about what happened to you in El Salvador. No, right. No, exactly right. So I had to quickly learn the racial hierarchies that structure uh, everyday life in the United States and the way in which they intersected to me very clearly with class difference. Now, the question was, why wasn't I observing this in El Salvador during the period of the war? And, and so I began really an exploration of class problematics or class center problematics. And that quickly led me uh, through the historical work to uncover that, in fact, racial difference was very much part of these processes. And so in the case of El Salvador, I was able to uh, really begin this question of race difference by examining the way in which the Salvadorian state had been 
actively involved in the erasure of racial categories from their censuses. And they did or undertook this project precisely at a time when there was greater organizing by people of color, in this particular case, indigenous folks. Although blackness is very much part of racial difference in El Salvador, and that has been suppressed even more than indigeneity. And I know this because at least the 1930 census explicitly has figures in racial categorization that tabulate the population amongst five different racial types, including black, Indian, and even yellow was a category. So the, the point is, racial difference was very much a part of Salvadorian politics, but it disappears in from national census censuses quite abruptly after the 1930s. And the interesting part is that the historical conjuncture during which these racial categories disappear is precisely the historical conjuncture in which there was greater mobilization by people of color that had been historically left at the margins. There was also a period of economic crisis with a downturn in the global market for coffee. And there was also the institution of the military regime. Uh, now, the census and for El Salvador wasn't taken again until 1950, despite the fact that the Constitution mandated the census to be taken every 10 years. And when it was taken in 1950, lo and behold, there were no more racial categories. So the question was explaining the reasons why this erasure and what I initially hypothesized was that uh, racial categorization had served historically as an ascriptive category that could justify differential patterns in labor practices and differential access to, to political representation, in particular at the local levels. But since racial difference had been seized from approximately the late 19th to early 20th century to press for rights and mobilize, particularly during the populist movement in El Salvador in the early 20th century and the labor movement, the racial categories then became threatening because folks were actually seizing them to press for for political rights and representation. And so the story was one of which the state is actively involved in the creation of racial difference and also actively involved in the reorganization of racial categories when those categories become politicized in such a way that they upset the existing systems of or structures that discipline labor markets uh, so systems of social control in, in general. In the early 1920s and 1930s, the movements you talk about that are beginning to move into revolt, were they mainly centered on questions of recognition, questions of demands for equal rights and inclusion, what some scholars very lazily, unfortunately some Marxist scholars are prone to call and dismiss as identity politics, or were they also centered around of various types of class and labor demands. Now, these were very much movements that contain both dimensions. I think the class and labor demands were central, but there was an absolute or definite, I should say, racial dimension to the demands. And 
what we're talking about here is in particular the the type of populism that emerged during the period of Aurajo in El Salvador prior to the institution of the military regime in the late 1910s, early 1920s. And these folks were generally mobilized in the urban centers. They included skilled artisans and skilled labor. But it was part of a growing movement of class consciousness and organizing center on the Salvadorian Communist Party during the 1920s. And that party being a part of a broader hemispheric movement of labor organizing in Latin America. Now, the difference, of course, is that it wasn't solely a class-based movement. It also contained racial grievances, in part because many of the folks that comprised the party or that were involved in labor organizing (coughs) came from uh, rural areas that had been de facto segregated since at least the 19th century or municipalities that were primarily indigenous. So there was the racial component as well as the class component, even though I think historians and those that have studied Salvadorian politics have casted them as being primarily class-based. As you know, probably much better than I do, there are certain scholars who study Latin America I'm thinking of Luis Quant and his mentor, Pierre Bourdieu, who argue that thinking about racial categories, political mobilization along lines of race in the United States and places such as Brazil. Brazil is, in some ways, when it comes to racial studies in the Western Hemisphere, as hegemonic as the United States mm. <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. But that these categories are imported by U.S. scholars, such as Michael Hanscher and Mark Sawyer, the late, very much missed Sawyer, and others. But from what it sounds like, from your studies in places like El Salvador, this has very little to do with importation of North American models or North Amer- of either scholarship or of political movements. No, I... I- I believe that the movements, when we look at them historically, were part and partial of a domestic set of movements of organizing of labor uh, since at least the 19th and early 20th century. Although what is what is certain is that I think one of the things that my work attempted to do is to for us to reconsider these movements in a more hemispheric light. Um, and, and, so, and so we can see, just as, for instance, when we examine the popular liberation movements of the 1970s and the 1980s, not only in the United States, but also across Central America and South America, uh, these were very uh, much interconnected and part of a, of a hemispheric movement. Same, likewise, I would I would uh, suggest that the movements of the of the early 20th century in the 1920s and 30s were also hemispheric. But the point is, this was an importation was not an importation of ideas, but there was a political tradition of labor organizing and uprising. And if we look at Salvadorian history, most of this 19th century history is punctuated precisely by peasant revolts that contain, again, uh, both labor and racial grievances. As, as you know, there's a number, well, a small number, but criti- of critically important political scientists who have tried to pioneer the study on a hemisphere basis of of various types of African descended movements, um, Juliet Hooker, Michael Hanger, yes. Mark Sawyer, 
our friend and buddy uh, Tiana Fitzgerald yes. to, to name some of the key figures in, across a couple of generations in this movement. One of the things that surprised, surprised me when I was read your work, and I keep telling people, don't forgive me, but do understand I'm an ignorant North Americano, <laughs> <laughs> was the presence of a politicized, um, didn't surprise me, marginalized Afro-descended population in El Salvador as well. And one of the questions I have is to what degree, one of the problematics that the scholars I mentioned try to work through is the relationship between indigenous movements and Afro-descended movements and the conflicts and cooperation, whether in rural or urban areas. I wonder how that played out in El Salvador in the 20th century or even today for that matter. Yeah, there's a, this is one of the questions, the presence of, of blackness that in El Salvador, that there's a dearth of empirical information on, as it is, Salvadorian records are really fragmentary. The archives are fragmentary. And um, we have a period of, or a gap in census records. And after that, there are very few. So what I can point out is that there's two important censuses, uh, the first major national census of 1920, and then 1930, as well as a major study on the Salvadorian population undertaken more recently in the uh, 1980s entitled La Población del Salvador or El Salvador's Population, all of these sources indicate that there was a definite Afro-descendant community and presence in El Salvador. But unlike indigenous communities, at least from the material, historical material extent, there isn't a clear indication that these populations were able to articulate demands as clearly as indigenous populations. So to use blackness as a category to mobilize, organize, and press for rights as indigenous folks had done. Now, one of the things that we can say is also there was a, a continuous flow of black populations between countries like Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador. So we know that there was a continuity in black communities, but there is very little known about the nature of political organizing between those communities and their relationship to indigenous movements. And that would be a fantastic study to undertake. Unfortunately, again, the, the, the historical sources are, are scant. One of the claims you make with reference to El Salvador that I've seen with, from other scholars with reference to Mexico is the way that the category of mestizo or in, um, mestijache is used as a way to, to flatten and, and depoliticize um, various racial categories, whether in the context yeah. of Mexico, El Salvador, or other policies. And what I was interested in, in working through with you is in how that becomes a central feature with obviously local variation in questions of how national identity is produced by the state or try to be produced by the state, sometimes quite successfully, I think, in the Mexican case. Right. Uh, could you talk about more about that in the context of El Salvador? Yes, and I think, I think one of the things that one can also examine this question comparatively. And definitely in the case of El Salvador, what we see 
again, it's this very dramatic shift. I don't think I've observed it in the survey of other census data anywhere in Latin America or certainly not the United States, where you have an almost a, a dramatic shift in racial categorization from having very distinct racial categories in census data to having none at all and never returning back to any system of racial categorization. And this happens for El Salvador between 1930 and 1950, where, again, the 1930 census had five distinct racial categories. And we know that the black population, according to that census for El Salvador, was at least 3%, according to the self-identification for folks that, that filled out the census surveys. But then you don't see any racial categories at all by the 1950 census. And one of the ways for me of explaining this was that racial categories in the case of El Salvador or the continued existence of racial categories in the case of El Salvador represented an opportunity for folks to mobilize around racial identities because the events of 1932 in El Salvador at the peak uh, or at the bottom, I should say, of the global financial crisis had seized racial categories for political purposes. Now, erasing the categories, therefore, meant that there would be no legal basis of recognition for mobilization. And what had happened is that we know uh, historically that indigenous communities had been able to seize the control of local politics at the level of municipalities by mobilizing around indigenous identity. Now, the problem, too, was that According to Salvadorian law, up until the period of the privatization of land in the late 1880s, the Indian category was essential for retaining land rights at the level of local municipalities. So that, again, represented a problem for the continuing existence of that category. And it's really interesting to look at this matter comparatively. We have the work of Melissa Nobles, for example, in her study of race in the United States and Brazil and the census, as well as the work of Clara Rodriguez in her Changing Race on Mexicans and the census, both of which I believe cogently demonstrate that racial categories are actively produced by the state and reorganize or change according to political exigencies and the conjuncture or intersection between those political exigencies and more structural economic processes. So, for instance, in the case of Mexicans and the census in the United States, in periods of economic downturn or in periods of political expediency, uh, Mexicans were classified as white, then they're classified again as Mexican, then back as white, and <laughs> etc. So we have this change in race, as Rodriguez's study indicates, in the criteria used for racial classification that responded to political and economic demands. So I have one comment, and please push back. I'm about to say something that I usually don't say because I don't believe it. (laughs) And then I have a question. The comment is that I am... I mean, very seriously, politically and intellectually, just have very little use for American exceptionalism, as in zero. But one perhaps empirical difference between the U.S. and other polities in the Western Hemisphere is that the, the, content, the, 
the comparison that is the same where you look at Brazil, where you look at Mexico, where you look at El Salvador, you look at the U.S., racial categories are extremely fluid as produced by the state. There's no, I, don't, I think it's still the case that if you look at the U.S. census, which is also constitutionally mandated for, a ten, as everybody knows, for a ten year, every 10 years, racial categories have never been the same. The difference in the U.S. because of slavery is that there is one category, there's two categories that have been always there, and that's white and black. Although Correct. they might have different names. <laughs> they, Correct, absolutely. Those have been there. There's those who were the masters of everybody, including those who were con you know, conquered, whether in the Pacific or, or in what was northern Mexico, or those who, were, and those who were enslaved or those who were killed off as an indigenous population. But those two categories have been relatively fixed within um, U.S. history in a way that maybe you don't have the same. This is a, be an interesting, I don't have the answer to this. My, this would be an interesting empirical question. Do you find the same type of, you might have fluidity, but there's a couple of fixed categories that sort of anchor the distribution or how we think of how racial categories are uh, structured. The question I have is that in your, in your work, you talk about um, very persuasively about the problem that the state had in El Salvador in the early to mid 20th century is that racial categories were very useful for maintaining capitalist labor regimes and then they become less useful as insurgencies start to be generated along both class and racial oppression. Is that, is that right? Yes, yes, exactly right, yes. I think one of the things in terms of the the question about the fixity, number one, the fixity of racial categories, I believe that historically that is one thing that is that is accurate for the United States' system of racial categorization. There is those two constants and then everything in between. Now, in the case, I believe, of Latin America, what, we're, what we see in the period that you cite, which was a, a a crucial period for Latin American nation state formation is that mestizaje uh, grows as an intellectual movement, which at its core was was whitening, but whitening in a in a civilizational sense. Latin American intellectuals had grown closer to Francophilia during the 1920s and were drawing more towards this fear of cosmopolitanism and the widening of populations along these cultural ideas of celebration of race mixture that went uh, hand in hand with this celebration of a civilizational project that was identified with Francophilia and and your Euro Western European modernity was a way of staking out claims about racial national identity, or another way of saying this is national identity is structured in racial terms, that can be used as a counterpoint to U.S. expansion in the region, in part because United States' expansion, this, by the way, comes 
in the period of time after the so-called banana wars or during the banana wars where United States interventionism was very strong in Latin America was ideologically, this expansion was ideologically driven by the idea that Latin America and its people constituted a mongrel population of a mixture of black, indigenous, and white folks, that it was as such uh, backwards and uncivilized. And the United States introducing its logic of Jim Crow and racial segregation, as well as a civilizational, quote-unquote, project uh, center on industrial production, was justified because the population and the region was so racially backward. So Latin American intellectual elites and and uh, folks in uh, Latin American nation-states crafted these projects, center on mestizaje as an intellectual and cultural movement of defining national identities that celebrated mixture and race mixture in particular, as well as cultural mixture. And they tied them or attempted to tie them to the growth of modernization and modernism that was strongly identified with the cosmopolitan movements of France. And this was historically, again, the gravitation towards France historically a function of uh, the Latin American movements for national liberation that sought to break away from Iberia or or Spanish and Portuguese legacies. You know, so uh, France emerged since the early 19th century as the leader for Latin America culturally. So I think that that's the way in which we can understand historically the reasons why you have this celebration of race mixture that was at its core whitening in a cultural and even racial sense as a, res as a response to the incursions of the United States and its explicit, its explicit racial differentiation of Latin American populations. One of the Recent, well, the la actually the, the the last podcast we did was with a UCLA historian named Peter Hudson, who who primarily works on the Caribbean, and yes. one of the commonalities I think between the, the work of his and your work is you both talk about it may not be scholars of color that are the imperial hegemon when it comes to the Western Hemisphere, but Western United States capital and industry very much is. So one of the things I wonder if you could talk about, maybe perhaps in the El Salvadorian context, is how has, with the changes in global capitalism and the relationship between with U.S. capital, maybe finance capital in particular, you can talk about, and how the relationship between, for example, U.S. politics on one hand and the politics, including the civil war and dirty war in El Salvador, have evolved since the period of the 50s, or in the 30s to 50s that we've been talking about. Yes, absolutely. I believe this is one of the most fascinating parts of recent Salvadorian history and its connection to the development of a global financial class. And one of the things is, the narrative here is that, for me, is that racial difference was always essential to facilitating processes of accumulation in El Salvador. But after El Salvador shifts its mode of production to from agro-industry to more uh, service and finance-based economy, what we see is that this 
previously agro-industrial class becomes an agro-financial class or more of a global finance class. And what we see is the, is the following. The Salvadorian Civil War was the culmination of a decades-long process since the 1930s of uh, radicalization and organization. And the war was meant to to restructure Salvadorian society and redistribute wealth and change this uh, centuries-old pattern of the concentration of wealth in the hands of a very wealthy agro-industrial class, many of whom were actually uh, descendants of European uh, migrants, mostly from Italy and England, uh, but some also from the Iberian Peninsula and Germany. And so you, there was a clear racial differentiation between the Salvadorian bourgeois class and the Salvadorian peasantry, which was mostly black and indigenous. And what you see then, the the irony then here is that with the conclusion of the Salvadorian civil war, that bourgeois class manages to achieve something which they had not been able to achieve for the better part of Uh, Salvadorian modern history, and that is to capture the state. Because it was that old oligarchic class that signs the peace accords in the 1980s and which then controls the Salvadorian presidency and the state for the next 20 years. And this bourgeois class, many uh, three of the four Salvadorian presidents after the war, that belonged to the ultra-right-wing ARENA party or the Nationalist Republican Alliance party of El Salvador, which, by the way, was founded by Roberto Dawison, who was the intellectual architect of Romero's murder, as well as as the organizer of the, the infamous Salvadorian death squads. Um, For our audience who may not know, who's Romero? I know, he's uh, a, I know who he is, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, Romero was the Salvadorian archbishop during the late 1970s until his assassination in March 24th of 1980. And he was initially elected or chosen by the Roman Catholic Church to be archbishop because he was considered a safe choice or a candidate that was moderate. But he radicalized, became a very vocal critic of the Salvadorian military regime and a, and a proponent of of social justice for the Salvadorian peasantry. And this, of course, angered those who held or wielded power and privilege and property in Salvadorian society, and this led to his assassination in uh, March of 1980. Now, that assassination was orchestrated by, now we know from from records since the conclusion of the war that conclusively or very persuasively demonstrated by the UN Truth Commission that that assassination was orchestrated by Dawison, who had trained in the United States. He was an intelligence officer, and and he also was uh, the founder, one of the co-founders of the ultra-right-wing National Republican Alliance. Now, the point is that this party that brought together the Salvadorian bourgeoisie was able to seize power at the conclusion of the war. They signed the peace. And up until that period, the Salvadorian state was controlled by the military, not by the bourgeois class since the 1930s. So what we see in the late 80s and 1990s was a series of 
National Republican Alliance presidencies. They held the presidency for consecutive time, times of these folks who were trained in the United States, uh, Georgetown University, for instance, for Alfredo Cristiani, who signed the peace. And then also Amherst University for Francisco Flores, as well as Harvard University and Trinity College for him. So all these folks were trained in the U.S. and had a business business type of training. And what they uh, many help degrees in finance or economics. And what these folks did is they undertook a series of steps in privatizing banks, privatizing pension funds, privatizing public works like electrical works, then led to policies such as dollarization that we saw under Francisco Flores, and also the signing of CAFTA-DR under his presidency in the late 1990s, leading to, of course, the further structural readjustment center on neoliberal policies that lower tariffs and trade. And so what this did is that it fully integrated El Salvador as part of global, the global money finance economy and furthermore helped these folks invest in the development of venture capital fund in uh, the global north. So one perfect example of this is the way in which the Salvadorian oligarchy in the 19, early 1980s, even before the conclusion of the war, put up the startup capital for uh, Mitt Romney's bank capital. They put up about 33% of the $37 million to start up uh, bank capital. And bank capital was started up solely with private funds, and the Salvadorians put 33% of that. Uh, and this was done by Ricardo Poma, and bank, uh, who was part of the Salvadorian uh, financial class, and he led the other Salvadorian oligarchs in this venture. And what Bank Capital now holds over $80 billion in assets, and it was responsible for the expansion of things such as Staples that went from one store in 1986 to over 1,700 retail stores today, and they have various investments, including the New England Patriots, AMC Theaters, Burger King, and if, uh, the NHL, Canadian Hockey League, etc. And that money came, 33% of those startup funds came from the Salvadorians. I was going to make a tacky comment about the Patriots, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but the I think it's important to just emphasize what you're talking about in terms of the flow of capital going in both directions. Right. Both exactly. from what we maybe perhaps too lazily call the global south to the global north. Correct. And, as well as in the other direction that scholars such as Hobson and others have been talking about for over 100 years from the north or the west to the, to the south. And... Obviously, there's implications for, major implications for U.S. politics. And I want to think about, as maybe three questions as we think about moving into the era that we're in now. Yes. And I know you've thought very critically and deeply about the rise of the type of politics that has led to the election and now the governance of Donald Trump as president of the United States. One is that the active phase of the Civil War in El Salvador is over. But it looks like, from where, whether we look at Africa or the Middle East or uh, Latin America, that U.S. military involvement is 
perhaps likely to, well, I don't think perhaps, likely to ratchet up again. What's the implications for Latin America and El Salvador? And second, we also know that one of the, one of the consequences for the entire region, including the United States, including El Salvador, including Mexico, including, like I said, the entire region, was of U.S. intervention was massive flows of immigration. And where do we, where are we now? And perhaps maybe the third thing to um, think through is what do these changes in the racialized global, uh, racialized global capitalism mean for politics in countries like El Salvador, but also countries like the United States? Yeah, I, I believe those three sets of questions are, are excellent. And, and let me begin by, by addressing the question about the implications of the Trump presidency on a greater military intervention in Latin America. We first saw this pattern in intensifying perhaps most exemplary by the coup against Manuel Zelaya in Honduras in 2009. And this was something that was orchestrated by, by when Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State. And what we see, and what Zelaya represented part of the part of the patterns of wealth redistribution in Latin America that are not compatible with neoliberal policies. And some of the things that Celaya was asking for, for example, was a minimum wage and better working conditions and uh, modest land redistribution were, were anathema to the goals of transnational corporations and, the, and really the terms of free trade agreements like CAFTA-DR. And so one of the things... It, it, it remains speculative at this point, but if the coup against the lion in 2009 tells us anything, is that as as poverty in Latin America intensifies as a result of the unfavorable balances of trade created by these transnational trade agreements, I mean, you have situations like the Pacific Rim mining company suing El Salvador for its right, quote unquote, to pollute its water and, and mine gold out of the country. El Salvador won against that, but that's exemplary of the types of in neoliberal incursions that CAFTA, DR, and these trade agreements have led to, that as those battles intensify, and labor organizing or organizing takes place to contest those multinational corporations, we will see the rise again of violence and uh, possibly even military intervention. And indeed, what we saw in El Salvador in their contest against the Pacific Rim Company was the reemergence of patterns of dead squad killings and disappearances that we had seen in the 1980s. So many labor organizers that were contesting the Pacific Rim's company's incursions in El Salvador disappeared during during that period. And so what what we see when we put that next to the coup, the U.S. orchestrated coup against Zelaya in in Honduras, uh, we see a resurgence of the patterns of uh, military intervention and political violence that we saw in the 1980s. And interestingly enough, at the same time that we had uh, the rise of neoliberalism today with the particular type of neoliberalism that emerged under the Reagan administration. Now, to the second question about how this affects 
the flows of uh, or the patterns of flows of uh, migrants to the global north. What we saw in the case of nations like Honduras, as we've seen increasingly more with El Salvador and certainly with Mexico since NAFTA went into effect in the mid-1990s, is that in effect, this free trade agreements, because of their imbalance, help to exacerbate economic conditions for folks and drive uh, further words of migrants north. And so we see, for instance, the decimation of the Mexican economy as a result of the introduction of genetically modifying corn after 1994, and we had a consequent rise in patterns of migration uh, from Mexico since then. We see this today from Honduras in particular, as well as El Salvador, that remain from the Central American region, the two countries where you have the majority of migrants. And it is no coincidence, I believe, that it, those two economies had been hit the hardest by, by CAFTA. There was then there's the question as to or or the thirdly as to what would this mean under the Trump administration or an, an intensifying of ideologically of and also also institutionally of the criminalization of migrants and migrant policing, which has been as I mentioned in in the talk one of the central components that the administration has used to garner consent for its policies. And that's one of the points that still needs to be worked out a, a bit more. One of the questions I think that is coming into intense and acute conflict within, I'm going to use the word I detest because I think it's accurate in this context, progressive politics in the U.S. Mm -hmm. is the ideal that we should focus on white workers and the white working class as a way to, under, to combat. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing right. already. <laughs> uh, to right. combat the authoritarian tendencies and other, you know, not just tragedies, but actual crimes of the current administration. So right. I have two, two questions. Well, two questions. One is, well, three questions. To what degree should we think about the U.S. being in crisis is one question, and what's the nature of that crisis? That's, mm -hmm. There's actually, I think, a productive discussion to be a little bit self-aggrandizing for a nanosecond. Between Nancy Fraser, a political theorist at the New School, mm -hmm. and myself have a, a productive and interesting disagreement about this. But to what degree are we in a crisis, and what is the nature of that crisis? Secondly, what's the nature of, contemporary, of, of this contemporary regime, both in terms of the state but also in terms of how we think about capitalism this period? Mm -hmm. uh, I know that previous guests on the podcast have lab used various labels to, to characterize the current regime. And the third, how do we think about, in this context, the intersection of... A of of race and capitalism, I'm going to focus on one question that focuses on Mexico and not on on El Salvador. Is that in your writings you talk about Mexican as a racial category, and certainly there's a lot of work within scholarship within the U.S. Mm -hmm. where, oh no, that's just an ethnicity. It has nothing to do with race. Right. So, so right. how do <laughs> how do we think about these things and trying to move forward and and to 
both as scholars right. and activists, you know, to move beyond this point and begin not just to resist, but to have a positive vision about where we're going. Right. These are fantastic questions. And, and I think to the first, the nature of the crisis, I do believe that we are living under a crisis. And I believe that the crisis that has catalyzed under Trump is fundamentally a constitutional crisis that is of understanding what is the extent and mandate of power for, for the presidency. And also, more fundamentally, I think that as has been demonstrated by, by the Trump administration, there is a willingness to circumvent constitutional mechanisms as well as political practices in, in Washington and more broadly in, in, in American politics that have served historically as checks on the powers of the presidency. So what we're seeing here, or what I'm, what I'm, what I'm suggesting here is that the, the nature of the constitutional crisis is one in which there is an erosion of the fundamental mechanisms of the uh, representative uh, democracy and republicanism, such as separation of powers, checks and balances, etc. And after all, a republic is meant to signify a particular type of state in which its institutions are balanced to each other and there's separation of powers and checks and balances. And I think that the crisis, therefore, is one in which there is a slow erosion of, and maybe not even that slow. I was about fact, to ask that. You know, <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe, in fact, it's actually quite dramatic because we're, after all, only in the fourth month here. Right. So it, it's, it's actually pretty alarming. And that leads me to, so I do believe that there's a constitutional crisis, or a crisis and one of a constitutional nature on a contestation on on the nature of republicanism and the mechanisms that sustain it. But that leads me to your second question and about what is the nature of, of the uh, contemporary regime? Now, I've chosen, I, you know, there has been a debate. Some folks have tried to characterize it as fascist, others as authoritarian, uh, etc. And I think uh, some historians like Robert Paxton have weighed in on this issue about, uh, and Robert Paxton it's written extensively on the nature of fascism, including his anatomy of fascism, and he wrote some pieces specifically on Trump. And uh, historians of fascism and, 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 and scholars of fascism like Paxton disagree that this is a fascist regime. I tend to agree with their analysis. And the reasons being is that at least fascists believed in the collectivity. <laughs> That's been the joke, you know, that at least fascists believed in uh, the collective project and there's no clear indication that there's any any belief in a public good that privileges some collectivity, even if it's a racially differentiated one, as fascists tend to do. And then there's folks that um, have termed the regime authoritarian, and I and I tend to to gravitate more towards this characterization because, in particular, the work done by Ian e. Bruff on authoritarian neoliberalism since at least the mid uh, like mid two thousands two thousand five to two thousand seven when Bruff was writing on the rise of authoritarian neoliberal regimes, and the reason why is because what we see here is 
a neoliberal regime, one which again pursues a particular set of economic policies that include privatization, cutting on social services or spending, etc., with greater state intervention, while at the same time pursuing number one, a set of policies that circumvent constitutional guarantees, and number two, uh, pursuing policy agenda that may even be contrary to uh, the law in order to, first and foremost, insulate itself from any type of political or social dissent or criticism. And so what we've seen under Trump, such as the persecution of the free and independent media, the firing of, of Sally Yates, as well as James Comey, heavy use of the executive order, which I think some political scientists have weighed in on this issue. And we've seen this pattern with other populists in times of crisis, like FD, FDR, for instance, is the president to use the executive order at, at, at the highest rate than any other. Trump is uh, certainly issuing a, a large amount of his executive orders during his short time, etc. All these patterns point to techniques or 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 strategies used by the regime to insulate itself from from criticism, and that has has been characteristic of the type of regime that Brof and other scholars call authoritarian neoliberal regimes, where again, it's a circumvention of constitutional mechanisms as well as even the law in order to insulate the regime from criticism for the neoliberal policies it pursues. And lastly, the question of the intersection of race and capitalism there is something that is not fully worked out in the analysis of the objective conditions leading to the creation of the, the fertile ideological ground for the type of regime that we're seeing. And the, the part of the analysis that is missing is, or not fully developed, is that we're not talking solely about objective conditions. We're also talking about subjective conditions or a subjective dimension. And race and racial difference is very much part of, of this subjective dimension that has to be explored. And, and so the thing is, preliminarily, my way of thinking about this is that we know, or at least we have sufficient historical and empirical evidence to to create a, a persuasive case that race and capitalism are constitutive of each other. But we yet to talk about how uh, beyond the that objective character or that or that that function that race and racial difference performs in capital accumulation, race also functions subjectively and non Non, uh, non-objectively, so to speak, in the sense that it can generate particular set or, or serve to create craft a particular set of narratives that serve to to rationalize what is otherwise irrational political processes or irrational from the standpoint of the objective conditions. And so here, I think that this is the 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 part that requires more explanation on how racial difference is being used to craft narratives, in particular narratives that operate in in the civil sphere as part of the intellectual and cultural work that goes 
into the gener the generation of consent for the regime. And one of the things that I said preliminarily is that that this narrative of the self-made entrepreneur that is successful it has been for a one example of the ways in which this this consent is generated. But now the point is how does racial difference operate in in that way of of generating consent for the for the regime. Uh, and so this is the subjective part of this. And what we've seen is that it has mobilized Trump has been adept at mobilizing basis of support which were in a in a state of 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 crisis of seeing their sense of status disappear uh, not only economically but also politically and what the previous administration the Obama administration represented to them was a loss of political status alongside a loss of economic economic status and so how then do these folks seize upon upon racial difference in order to craft uh, narratives that serve to generate consent for, for the regime. It's one question that I think still needs further analysis. This is a question I've been working on, one in a published piece that I published last year in Critical Historical Studies and a piece I'm working on now. Uh, let me just say a quick uh, sure. Quick comment, and then then maybe explore that a, a bit. The sure. quick comment is that I agree. I mean, I've been persuaded over a series of podcasts and obviously readings of your work and that of others of thinking about the current regime in the context of authoritarian neoliberalism. And I think people are also for historically conflating national socialism with fascism. Fascism, at least in terms of the Italian version, to some degree the Spanish version, were less racialized than the German version of national socialism, which had racial, you know, racial categories and the racialization of the Jewish population of the world, not just of Germany, obviously, as the as the core component. But the other way of thinking about the current regime that we talked about offline and which Kaushik Sunarajan has talked about is also thinking about in terms of this current regime in the U.S. as mafia capitalism. And one of the reasons to think about it in that sense is the role of the family and the looting of the <laughs> resources for, right. for, for the family's benefit. There's a story today, for example, about how the son-in-law is now under investigation by the FBI. Right. Uh, and it's all about business deals, primarily in Russia, but we've also been reading about business deals of the, fam of the Kushner family in China right. as well. The question that I've been thinking about for probably over about a year and a half to a year now is before even predating the election is the nature of what I also see as a crisis. And obviously it's an economic crisis that has been barked in some sense by the, the extraordinarily greedy nature of neoliberalism and, right. and redistributing wealth back to the um, to monopoly capitalists. But a part of that, a part of the crisis, uh, not redistribution, is you talk about a lack of political status. I would also argue that it's, it's a, a, a lack, uh, I mean, a loss of racial status and patriarchal status as well. And right. I think it's important to think about it in those terms. 
The deal that was cut, I would argue, going back to the New Deal, was that, and this is not just in the U.S., but you can find it in countries that either had external or internal colonies, so I'm talking about the global north more generally, mm-hmm. is that we'll use the super profits generated from the expropriation of resources and labor from racialized populations in the global south and within our own territories, in the case of the U.S., I'm thinking, obviously, or conquered territories, again, thinking about the U.S., to provide social democracy for a primarily male, overwhelmingly white and European working class. And that's the classic proletariat that the Marxists celebrate. Uh-huh. And what neoliberalism has done is saying, well, Maybe we'll still let you have the patriarchal and racial status, but <laughs> the economic goodies are gone. <laughs> and I think what the Obama yeah. administration brought into crisis in the U.S., but it's not just the Obama administration in the U.S., because we see the same thing in Hungary. We see the same thing in France. We see the same thing with Brexit, whether it's Le Pen in France or Brexit in, in the U.K., in the United Kingdom is the real realization that the economic losses to a formerly privileged sector of the working class and petty bourgeoisie that's overwhelmingly white and male are massive. Right. And right. in the United States, there is at least symbolic evidence that the racial and gender benefits are also under attack. Mm-hmm. So what Trump is, said, is saying, he's not saying really anything, as we know, but even he wasn't saying, I'm not going to give you the money back. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm going to put those people in their place. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think they, I think all the parts of the argument, this is a current piece you're working on? Yes. Yeah, no, this, I think it's, it's spot on. I, I like your angle on talking about, I, I framed it in terms of political status, but I think the specific thing is to say racial and patriarchal status, as you as you are pointing out here. And one of the things I mentioned during the talk was that folks tend to forget that the New Deal and the populist policies of the FDR period fully accommodated the logic of Jim Crow. And Absolutely. That, and that, in fact... Reinforced it. Um, it reinforced it. And what it amounted to was hundreds of millions of dollars of wealth redistribution, as you put it, from the racialized sectors of the U.S. working class and the global south to the white working class in the global north. And so that was the so-called, as Robert Reich says, the, the so-called great prosperity of the United States. <laughs> exactly. it, was a, it was a great prosperity for a male white working class because these populist regimes that were adopting these Keynesian models were redistributing wealth from the racialized sectors of the U.S. working class and the working class in the global south. So the question then is, I think, why did these regimes now adopting neoliberal policies undercut the, the, the redistributive aspect of that wealth for the, the white male worker and now are just uh, focusing on restoring their sense of racial and patriarchal superiority in part I think because these things came under assault in the 1960s and 1970s with popular liberation movements, not just here, but globally. And the sense was that there was a way in which 
the systems of social control and social discipline were quickly evaporating and that was bad for both capital and also or disintegrating and that was bad for both capital and for the uh, white male working class that had benefited from from Jim Crow and so the point is capital it's it's it, it poses a barrier to to perpetual capital accumulation to have one a racialized working class that is no longer disciplined because now they're in movement and and two a, a white working class that is increasingly more organized and the strength of of unionized labor that also poses an impediment to future accumulation and so of course you move shop and you undercut them and you undercut their wages but at the same time you tell them, well, we'll restore uh, racial status uh, for you. And so I think that that is, that is one of, definitely one of the, the, the parts of the narrative here that we have to think about in terms of the subjective component of, of the process here. And one of, I think, if I, if I may, one of the things here that that I, I, is un, underexplored is that folks, at least for the Marxists that have worked on this problem, like David Harvey and Robert Brenner, particular Robert Brenner, their point of entry has been the uh, the explanation of the economic crisis in terms of a fall in the rate of profit because of continuous technological innovation and uh, also labor organization, which drove wages up. But what they don't, I believe, account for is that the cardinal rule for perpetual capital accumulation is precisely the existence of a disciplined and tractable, quote unquote, or at least more tractable uh, labor pool and industrial reserve army. And race serve and racialization serve to, to, to discipline this. And what the 60s and 70s not only here, but globally represented, was a fundamental challenge to that. You know, so these folks then have to say, well, you know, this this working class is no longer, these sectors of the working class are no longer viable. And when coupled with, again, the challenge of white organized labor, the result is move shop, you know, essentially. So... We have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I think uh, the the work that that you're doing is 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 precisely the the part of of this this study that uh, I'm still working through is the idea is the the ideological component or the subjective component. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, I think we'll bring this to an end. There will be many more conversations, and thank you very much. No, thank you very much. I'm grateful to, to have been part of it. Thanks. <laughs>